Time to get the lab flicking. I am Karri, the Finnish expat living in Poland. Still, yes, I'm Karri, just just Kim. I'm not left all by myself, though. Henrik's work in Haddonfield is not done yet. Greetings. Yeah, nice hearing from you once again. Same here. It is time to put up the webcam circa 2002 and once again and especially now slash some cellulose with a butcher knife section by section layer by layer well we have reached the point of fantastic cinema yeah the point that neither one of us actually wanted to reach and neither did jamie lee curtis <laughs> yeah that that's that's Quite apparent in this film. It is. It seems like, like it. It's also the brilliant acting, but if you think about it like that, it looks like he definitely doesn't want to be at the set. The story goes something like, Jamie Lee Curtis was about to do H2O. She was about to quit H2O just weeks before the shooting, if we are to believe IMDb again. But... She turned herself around and decided to join the project that she actually kickstarted. The problem with the project was that she absolutely didn't like the idea that Michael Myers would still return after Halloween H2O. She knew that he would return after H2O, but there was some kind of an agreement made with the producer Mustafa Akkad and others that if she joins, then there must be no reference of any kind in that film that Michael Myers would return, but that it would only be revealed later when the inevitable would happen, that is, Halloween Resurrection. Yeah, the thing with Resurrection's production is that there is kind of a two rumors going around how this film came to be. The first one pushed by the producers and the makers of the film goes that the whole thing was planned from the get-go. Like, they they laid out the groundwork for Resurrection way back when they were doing H20, and everybody on board kind of knew that Halloween Resurrection is going to happen at some point. And the other version is that none of this was actually planned Everybody was kind of assuming that there will be another sequel of the H20 simply because of the franchise appeal, but no plans were in motion at that point yet. And that Jamie Lee Curtis returned for this film simply because, or this is a rumor that I have heard unconfirmed, that when she signed for H20, she did not realize that the contract she made at that moment also tied her or forced, uh, forced her to appear in the sequel. That is quite uh, unbelievable oversight when you're signing a contract and you don't realize that you have just signed yourself for the cinematic masterpiece that we are about to discuss. Uh, I have heard that she was 
scheduled to do only a 30 second cameo. However, there was some bullshit floating around, must be marketing bullshit, that said that Jamie Lee Curtis was, I'm not sure of the exact quote, but Curtis was so impressed by the script that she wanted to do even more, a four day workload on her to do an even longer scene where she would be finished off. When you think about it though, the rules that she set for this film appearance, she wanted that Jamie Lee Curtis's character Laurie Strode would be killed, so there is no way for Laurie Strode or anyone else played by Jamie Lee Curtis to reappear in any of the sequels. So if you... Looking at you, Halloween 2018. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but uh, she wanted to finish it. And to finish her off, I believe that makes only sense that if she really wants to finish off her character, then she kind of has to think the fans, has to think of the logic that you cannot kill the character in 30 seconds. So but she was definitely happy to get out of the franchise. But yeah, as you said, then Halloween 2018 is uh, coming very shortly as we are recording this. And it could be argued that that is a far superior film without having actually seen the film. But looking at all the reviews right now, it's looking much better. I suppose the only reason that she signed for the new project is that they were finally able to get together at least some of the core group people of the original Halloween, namely Nick Castle, the original shape. Well, he did a cameo, but he was on the set. John Carpenter has appeared on the set. John Carpenter did the music. Uh, the script apparently was good. And the Jamie Lee Curtis's, I think they are somehow family, that Jake Gyllenhaal, is it like, uh, how are they related? Anyway, it was Jake Gyllenhaal who recommended to Curtis to try the new Halloween. Yeah, I heard about pretty much the same rumors now that I've actually been following the upcoming film. Yeah. Can you imagine what's going through Jamie Lee Curtis's head when she is somewhere and Jake Gyllenhaal calls it, hey, maybe you should do the new Halloween. And she must be like, what the fuck, not again. But, uh, I, I would believe that if we go by the, you know, statements given considering age 20, what was going on in her head at the moment was the paycheck. That's very, very likely. And H2O started with the best intentions, of course, everybody likes the paycheck. But then it became a project that she didn't really envision it being because the people she wanted into the project didn't join the project and it became something else for her. And then we have Halloween Resurrection. All right, Halloween Resurrection. What's your background with Resurrection? I did take notice of the film when it was coming out. I was mildly interested about seeing it when the hype train was going on. Never actually saw the effort to check it out on theaters. However, the poster art and Busta Rhymes kind of a, was enough red flags that I passed it on its original release and finally bought it from a bargain bin for, for my own, own collection 
simply to see it and mostly to have a complete set of the Halloween franchise. Yeah, I remember something about the Finnish premiere of Halloween Resurrection. And um, I remember being very enthused to see the movie. But as far as I remember, it was only shown in conjunction with some kind of a film festival type of thing. And it was maybe shown one, two or three times max. And uh, probably only in Helsinki. So could have been... A yeah, it could, could have been the Night Visions festival. Ah, yeah, yeah. That sounds familiar. Uh, although I must confess, I'm not completely sure. I have uh, an image in my head that it was running in Finkino's own special yeah. lineup. Yeah, it was. Must be. Yeah, it's... Like I said, it... it well, or it was years ago at this point. So yeah, I really have no clear memory how it was launched in Finland. I have the impression that the, many of the Halloween movies haven't had a proper release premiere in Finland. And this was uh, also one of them. The film was first released in USA on July 1st, 2002, then again on 12th of July. Maybe this was kind of a, yeah, it's just kind of a special premiere on 1st of July. And then only later on 13th of November in 2002 in Helsinki. That sounds about right. Yeah, for, I, my, for my understanding, only age 20 got a real proper theatrical, uh, theatrical release in Finland of all the Halloween franchise. Yeah, yeah. Even in Poland, this came out 18th October. 2002. I remember I wanted to go to see this film in one of its uh, showings, but there was something stopping me. Perhaps I just couldn't get enough of a... I didn't have time to go on those specific dates, I believe. And I just completely missed it, and then I bought the DVD when it came out later. I remember waiting for this movie with a lot of enthusiasm, because everybody started to have the internet everywhere, and... I was following this film closely, how Rick Rosenthal joined the project. I collected all the interviews that I could possibly find, all the photos, and was excited that a fan, Brad Laurie, is playing Michael. But uh, I actually can't quite remember what I thought about the film when I saw it the first time. I think, well, definitely it, it, it wasn't as good as Halloween H2O, you could tell that. Even then, when I was a kid. I just didn't care enough about the plot. But also at the same time I remember that I was moderately interested in the Big Brother type of a setting. But I didn't like Big Brother like ever. I was excited to see the first season when it premiered in Finland. And then I see that it was a complete shit show. I mean, my idea of a Big Brother would have been to have people inside a house really struggling for their survival, for their next meal and and that it would just kind of develop naturally which it doesn't in this show yeah i had a kind of a, like a darker idea about the big brother it should have been way more challenging yeah you would have just barricaded them inside the house then slowly cut off the water electricity and food support yeah <laughs> reducing the contestants into cannibalism at the long run. Exactly. So <laughs> Halloween Resurrection was kind of aching maybe more to something that I wanted to see. Some, some kind of a horrific 
moments inside the house or something like that. Um, but as it turns out, it didn't quite work. I remember being extremely disappointed with the film, even on the first viewing. Yeah. Even as a kid, I did not much care for Resurrection. And a part of that is, is the fact that unlike you, at the point when Resurrection finally came out, I was already done with the whole reality TV horror movies aspect. Yeah. Resurrection came out on that weird period of time when, like you said, the mainstream internet had made its breach just a moment ago. Like, internet was an open thing at that point, but it still wasn't in the capacity that we use it today. We still were able to live in those old modem days. Back in those days. Yeah, before Facebook. Yeah, before Facebook. And the reality TV aspect had crept in into horror movies some time ago, before Resurrection. There was this boom of this lower budget horror flicks that were both brought into theaters oh yeah at this time period which tried to make horror with this reality tv internet audiences twist on the plot one of the first ones i remember is the horror film my little eye i was just about to say that i was yeah so it's similar yeah. to this one right it is and it preceded Halloween Resurrection, and that was the film that I was actually somewhat interested about simply because of the premise of combining horror movies and internet reality TV. Yeah. But I managed to check it out before I saw Halloween Resurrection, and from my little eye, it made me painfully, or it made it painfully clear to me that theatrical release horror movies can't pull off that reality TV aspect. So when Halloween Resurrection came out and once again was marketed itself with this, well, it's going to be a reality TV show in the Myers house and that's kind of what's going to start the events of the film. I already knew that, you know, the reality TV aspect of this movie is kind of lost. They can't pull it off. They couldn't pull it off in my little eye. It, it's worthless here too. And so it is. So it is. It's just trying to ride with the trend wagon. And it's not working. And it's, It is. Yeah. It's not so much about filling in the entire logic this time. It's about uh, filling in the why. Why, why, why. But that's pretty much one of the trap holes all of these Big Brother meets horror films always landed. It's the, the aspect of bringing reality TV into the mix never actually gave any of these movies any kind of a inner logic or any kind of a actual plot-wise sense. It was always just an answer to the question why these people are at this location. Exactly. And why are we following these people? in this location, other than the, than it being the Myers house here. I... Yeah, I mean, yeah, my little eye faces the exact problem, where the whole reality TV aspect, even though it is 
pretty heavily tied into the plot of that movie. It never actually gives you that much in plot-wise. It's simply quick explanation for why the characters are in the one location and later on for the final twist of the film. And that's all the reality TV aspect can pull off plot-wise in that movie. And it's the same thing in Halloween Resurrection. Yeah, once again... This is now like the third time at least in the series. We have now killed Ellie Corner's character Rachel. We have killed Jamie. We have killed Laurie. And now we have no stable characters from the series' past anywhere. And we are riding with these new characters with a new type of plot setting. And it's just, it's just the whole premise doesn't work. It's not interesting. And that is tied, in my opinion in the inherent problem in Halloween's core concept. Yeah. it you, The first film never gives motive for Michael Myers in any way, and it works on the first film. But you can't build up a franchise where the killer just kills someone without a rhyme or reason. These uh, uh, slasher movies, typically, they need some kind of a motivation for the killer to act even even a small one like Jason Voorhees has his campgrounds and if you don't go to the campgrounds nothing happens but always the jackass bunch of teenagers venture into the camp crystal lake and the mayhem starts Freddy Krueger has his whole I want to take revenge on the kids of the people who murdered me all those years ago and that is the running motive behind that character. In both of the franchises, you kind of see the plot structure starting to waver at the point when they finally run the course with the original motive. When Jason leaves Camp Crystal Lake, you start immediately scratching your head. Like, why does Jason Voorhees see all this trouble? To travel somewhere else to start mayhem. What is driving him here? And the movie can't answer that. Nightmare on Elm Street. Once Freddy finally got rid of all the original Elm Street kids, it became kind of a mess where Freddy's motive and Freddy's entire essence changed. The franchise starts with Freddy simply wanting to take revenge on his murderer's kids. And later on, Freddy wants to come back to life. Freddy just wants to terrorize everyone. Freddy wants to find his lost kid. Freddy is some kind of a demon spirit. The film no longer can actually found foothold for Freddy to do anything. And it's the same type of problem with Michael Myers, where that I have no motive, I simply enjoyed killing. It works for the first film, but you can't build a franchise on that kind of a character, which eventually led them introducing Laurie Strode as Michael's lost sister in Halloween 2. And it works. It, it worked pretty well, in my opinion. But you can't have gazillion films of Michael simply hunting Laurie, which led them introducing the Jamie character so that there would be another target. Well, once again, you get three films about one target. So Jamie had to go. Now it's fourth film with Laurie Strode character. Laurie Strode has to go at this point. And once again, 
now with the bloodline being extinguished, there is the problem that Michael actually has jack shit to do. Yeah, they made the decision to wipe out the bloodline apart from the son played by Josh Hartnett. And in one point they were even thinking of making a sequel to Resurrection where the Josh Hartnett's character John would be the one out for revenge against Michael. But my god, even that would have been a more decent return than having Resurrection. You could have skipped Resurrection and just go directly to the Josh Hartnett story. But then again, Josh Hartnett at that point must have been a little bit more <clears throat> expensive for the Halloween series to use. He was in Pearl Harbor and he probably got his status way up after that and must have been not interested in returning to any of the Halloween sequels in any capacity. And then you run into the problem of somebody replacing the character. So if somebody else would be playing John and that would not work either. So there is of course that. This is like two movies in one. We have one short film which ends in a situation that nobody of the franchise fans wants to see, which is we kill the main lead character. And then we have a over one hour long mess that deals with characters that we do not know, we cannot care for, in a plot that we don't care for either. This is the only Halloween sequel or Halloween movie filmed in Canada or anywhere outside of the US. Canada deserves better than this. There is nothing innovative here. The kills are uninspired. Many of them are repetitions from the past. Some of them could be seen as, uh, again, one of these hat tips. The plot is uninteresting and doesn't have any familiar characters from the past. Why was this movie even made? There's only one answer to that, and that is uh, dollar signs. Why make such an obviously sloppy movie, though? It's so bad from the get-go, from the script onwards. Why? But here we are. Today's drinks are Tyra Banks cappuccino, beer, vodka, something with a strip of lemon, and uh, red wine. Yeah. Isn't that right? I, myself here, am back in a bottle of Los Molinos, which is Spanish red wine. I hit the alcohol boutique here in Finland and immediately bought this bottle because I misread the label and thought it said Los Molos and was immediately like, that's my wine. <laughs> there you see where dyslexia actually leads you. <laughs> I'm still working on my Torunska from the last episode and I noticed that in this episode in the party they drink vodka, so here I am with my Torunska. Yeah, I still have to go through the bottle of Boris Yeltsin myself, so waiting for the next vodka movie. <laughs> yeah, well... Do you want to do the synopsis? Well, basically, synopsis for this movie. It's Michael, after finally managing to kill Laurie Strode and in extinguish the bloodline. Okay, yeah, without, you know, if not counting Josh Harnett's character in here. <laughs> Michael finally returns back home, notices that he has absolutely nothing to do at this point. And then the movie happens. Thank God there happens to be a reality TV crew with annoying teenagers who come barging in from the front door of Myers' residence. And that's the movie. 
That's a good synopsis. This movie starts with the Laurie Strode story and ends it for now. Here we come to see what happened in H2O, or according to this movie anyway, what happened in H2O. It shows us how Michael has swapped clothes with paramedic. Yeah, one of the first idiots that comes running down into the aftermath of the previous film and hmm. is left alone checking, you know, Michael's pulse. Yes, the paramedic is left all alone and Michael grabs him, changes the clothes, destroys his larynx. Michael Myers gets butt naked and changes his clothes to the paramedic and uh, apparently is holding the knife outside of the building looking at Laurie Strode driving with the then unknown person and uh, actually chopping off his head. This guy is revealed in this movie as being the actual paramedic with the mask. It's nice to see that the medical professionals at the scene are completely okay with this completely random paramedic that does not look anything like their colleague, whom which they actually came to the scene just walking around with a bloody kitchen knife and then disappearing into the woods. As Michael's exit from the crime scene of age 20 seems to happen here. So it seems. Because we are very thorough in this podcast. I actually contacted the doctor to speak about larynx. And uh, how it would affect someone's voice if they are even completely losing their larynx. So he said, even if you cannot make sounds... You can use your lips and tongue to make a sort of a whisper. So there goes the entire plot device of Resurrection and the entire retcon. It, it also goes with, or I don't know what your doctor friend said, or the doctor you contacted. Does actually destroying a person's larynx cause a massive brain trauma immediately? We didn't... Because there there has to be some kind of a damage going on with the paramedic's head. Since at the moment when he realizes that he's wearing a mask and there is a weird lady standing in front of him holding a fire axe, the first reaction you do is not to take off the mask and show your face to the weird lady with the fire axe, but instead try to <laughs> try to reach her. There is also that. The doctor said that indeed the whole larynx can be even missing. There are also some tools that can be artificially placed to give some kind of a voice back. Um, what was your question about the larynx? And does it cause a massive brain trauma? That we did not discuss. But I read that if you lose it, then there is a risk that you lose a lot of oxygen in your lungs. And it can be a life-threatening situation. So, But not always, it seems. Okay, so in that case, there is some kind of a medical background for the paramedic acting like a complete fucking idiot. Yeah. You know, at his death scene. Basically, he's able to grab his hair in a confusing way and then just touching his mask but not removing it. Yeah. But, but, you know, hey, maybe that was, you know, the sudden lack of oxygen 
Yeah, like, well... Or, or maybe he hit his head really hard when Michael pushed him towards the wall. It, it's nice to see that, you know, the movie makes more sense on, you know, the completely idiotic solution of not removing your mask at that situation and showcasing your identity to Laurie Strode more than the actual destroying the larics idea that the movie throws around. Meanwhile, we are meeting Laurie Strode and she suffers from extreme dissociative disorder. These can be several different kind of conditions that involve disruptions or breakdowns of memory, awareness, identity or perception. But as it turns out, if we are talking about most of these, I would say that this is just uh, Laurie Strode extremely well faking it. It's actually quite hard to tell in this movie. Does she fake it or does she not? I mean, very beginning of her scene, there is the whole hiding her pills and apparently she has made some preparations at the sanitarium grounds for the return of Michael Myers beforehand, which would imply that, Mm. yeah, she's faking, faking it and the whole thing is just a plan, you know, to trap Michael Myers. But at the very end of you know, her scene, she goes full retard all of a sudden and is complete doofus, which on the other hand implies that, you know, she really is just a head case. Hmm. Well, however, this disorder, we do not see any signs of it. We do, do not see breakdowns of memory or awareness or identity or perception. At least we are left to believe that everything that she sees is real. Anyway, we get done with the flashback retcon, and... Which I have to point out at this point, since we are still talking about the flashback retcon, there is the producer's push story that this was pre-planned. Like, this was... The the retcon was planned already when they were making H20. If I understood correctly, the scene where he's holding the knife and the ambulance is driving away with Laurie, that is the scene that they filmed during H2O. And I would call complete bullshit on that because actually in the incredible pre-planning of this scene, they did not manage to get the ambulance right. Oh, okay. So it's a different ambulance. It's a different ambulance. Huh, okay. Well, if I look at the other scenes from this flashback, you can see that they are using the new mask. But with the paramedic scene, he's not wearing a mask at all, of course. Hard to say what they filmed beforehand and if it's even part of Halloween Resurrection. I'm going off off a limb and saying that they really did not figure any of this shit out when they were making H20. He's just hastily put together excuses that they made, you know, while filming Resurrection and the whole thing about how this was planned and how they had this great idea all this time is just, you know, the producers trying to salvage what there is to be to be salvaged at the moment. There are some sources that actually say that Kevin Williamson came up with the retcon story just before they started uh, filming H2O. And uh, one day after the principal photography of H2O finished, then they filmed something for Halloween Resurrection and to be used three years later when it was done. And I'm still saying that's a lie. I'm not buying that story at all. 
We know that Mustafa Akkad didn't want to kill the character, and there is also the story that Jamie Lee Curtis didn't want to start even filming, but then at the last moments uh, she agreed. So I believe they actually shot stuff during H2O. Yeah, I'm not buying it. We can try to check some sources later. Well, anyway, there are some stupid editing in this film. The most notable one is that they use a lot of slow motion for 24 frame per, per second material in many situations. I guess it's supposed to be some kind of a trendy thing. It looks horrible. It's used when the washing machine is rolling in the beginning. It's used in the ending when Buster Rhymes wakes up after he has been thrown against a wall. I would say that this is more than any stylistic choice. This is the same thing that that's with this movie's weird scenes of Michael Myers walking in the in dark hallways during the middle part of the film or all those lingering shots of Michael, which is simply that they are trying to pad out the length of this movie. And the moment when Laurie comes to the rooftop and is waiting for Michael and ambushes him. Everything is again so convenient that Michael happens to be exactly at the right spot where the leg can be lifted off with the rope and also Michael drops the knife for some reason on the floor. Of course it doesn't work in Laurie's favor and then Michael grabs Laurie when she's about to check that is this guy actually Michael or not or is it some kind of a retcon moment all over again and he grabs Laurie and something weird happens. Michael probably catches the rope there and manages to stab Laurie when they are hanging outside of the building already and then she drops Laurie to her death. Yeah, and absolutely nothing in the sanitarium scene. Like from the very beginning of this scene, nothing makes any sense. And why do this? Why even... I mean... They could have just used Laurie Strode character as some kind of a side character. Uh, actually, now I remember when I heard about Laurie Strode being returned into this movie, I was actually convinced that Laurie Strode would be some kind of a very short, end scene appearing Sam Loomis type of character who would come to save the day in the burning house of. Michael Myers and would come there as the all-knowing person and just helping out these characters. That's what I thought that her role would be. But no, they fucking kill her. Yeah, but in defense of killing her, the character takes so much abuse logic-wise. At this point of the franchise that, I don't know, I'm almost, you know, just happy to see her go. Yeah, it was Jamie Lee Curtis's decision to kill off the character. <clears throat> and I can completely understand why. After all, she didn't want to do this. She wanted to be out for good. Actually, if she only had a deal for two movies, H2O Resurrection, then what is stopping her from saying no for any future installments? Why do you have to kill her? Weird. Yeah, I don't know if this was... Who really wanted to kill Laurie Strode? Was it so that Jamie Lee Curtis just strong-armed that decision through the production process? Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. Well, stupid moments continue. There's Michael handing his knife to this clown-masked inmate. It's absolutely crazy and ridiculous. Actually, that's one of the more logical moments of this movie. 
How is it logical in any way? Uh, in a sense that in that moment, Michael kind of sets up the other inmate as the fall guy for the carnage that happens at the asylum. Ah, yeah, well, yeah, that actually makes sense. Yeah, and it actually could happen because this is an asylum where apparently psychopath obsessed patients are allowed to walk freely outside. Yeah. I don't know if we are back at Smith's Grove or what asylum this is, but... It's a different asylum. Well, it could have fooled me. Because, you know, at the very end of... Beginning of this scene, there is the whole thing with this exact same patient. Just, you know, having mm. a stroll outside at the night time. And mm. basically all the guards, security guards just being like, Hey, yeah, well, no biggie. Exactly. The dude has a weird hard-on for serial killers. And still, hey, completely okay that you are walking outside the sanitarium premises. Yeah. Then, well, then Loris Strode is dead. There's a working print of this movie, which is slightly different again, you know. This series and its versions, as always. In the working print, she falls on pavement. And in the final version, she just falls somewhere into blackness through a bunch of CGI trees. Because that's the thing that is important to fix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Loris Road death scene. Yeah, apparently concrete was just too cruel, so let's introduce some forestry. <laughs> yeah, or then they are trying to, you know, hide the fact that Loris Road actually had hit the con- concrete sometime before the whole scene started. And the way that she falls looks really weird and artificial. Yeah. Anyway, we have now killed the main character of the series, so moving on, naturally, to start off the actual movie. So, we start this wonderful little story in a university, I believe. They're having a class there. 50% of the people could be said to be sleeping on this class. Rick Rosenthal is the professor. Well, maybe he's a better professor than a movie maker in this case. I'm still forgiving the man simply on the grounds that he did make Halloween too. He did make Halloween too. How do you make Halloween too and then make Halloween Resurrection? Why do you even sign for this kind of a project? I guess Rick just did nothing else going for him at that point. Like this most likely was his biggest break at the cinema. Yeah. They did ask Whitney Rancic and Dwight H. Little of Halloween 4 fame to return back to Haddonfield, but Little turned down the chance to direct, and they turned to Rick Rosenthal. Looks like they were looking for the old directors from the series. Not a bad idea, and I had huge hopes for this movie because of Rosenthal, but did not work. You really don't see Rosenthal's touch in anywhere of this film. You see maybe that maybe Rick Rosenthal kind of forced the blue lighting and more shadows, more darkness in this movie. The lighting is okay sometimes. Maybe he had influence on the DOP. Nah, the lighting is just, you know, Harvey Weinstein trying to save in production budget, cutting off the lamps at the set. Okay, there is that possibility. We are introduced to Deckard. Deckard is the love interest of Sarah, or so we could say. They of course only have this 
cyber romance going on right now. And if they have a romance. If they have a romance. I, I never got that impression from yeah. the interaction. And that's one of the few things I kind of sort of like in Halloween Resurrection. That they don't have a romance. Yeah, that the interactions between Sarah and Deckard are completely faceless and simply happen through texts and internet connections. Yes. I know there are some alternative takes, and I, I know that there is few scenes more in the script which yeah. kind of build up more the interaction and where they finally meet face-to-face. I'm happy as hell that they, those were omitted from this film. I am too, and I am happy because the acting of Sarah, uh, is it Bianca Kaili? How do you pronounce that? Let me see. I will say this Bianca Kailich or Kailich. Bianca artist name. Bianca artist name. I do not like her acting in this movie. I think it's terrible. And I do not understand why she appears in this alternative cut as some kind of a... She doesn't care that Deckard is there. She kind of gives a kind of a shy hug to Deckard and then Deckard tells about himself that his name's actually Miles and then Sarah seems like she doesn't give a shit like okay cool so in that sense I'm glad that they didn't use it in the final cut it was awkward it was Bianca showing all the range of emotions at that home okay but Deckard saved her well there is only so much you can show emotions if you are a professional actress. Well, I think we can agree that it was an awkward moment. It, it was extremely awkward moment, and Bianca is extremely weak lead for this movie. You were correct. I was first sort of excited that they would actually get a, a correct actor to play this role that would kind of carry on the torch as some kind of a lorry character, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah... <laughs> Well, that's the lead character for now. And what do you think about Buster Rhymes? I'm trying to put off the topic. I'm trying to push on with the topic. As long as I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when did I first watch this movie? Or the last time, when did I watch this movie? It must be a long time ago. Because this definitely has not been a part of my Kauhoenu and Night of the Horror events. So, and I'm sure that I have not seen it in anywhere in those years and after when we finished the Night of the Horror stuff. Wow, when have I seen this the last time? For me, it must have been 2004, 2005. Because during, uh, it most likely has been during that time that this movie has hit the bargain bins and you have been able to get this pretty cheaply. Yeah, I believe it could be even the case that I have seen this the last time in 2003 or 2004. There is absolutely no Buster Rhymes or reasons for me to watch it later on. I don't think so. Yeah, the whole Buster Rhymes appearance in this movie is just... It's once again a sign of those times when it was kind of the thing that you just had to have one of the some rapper in your movie 
This is the same period when LL Cool J was breaking big and mm. Snoop Dogg was doing more movies without wandering in the territory of porn yet. And we had a lot of these rap stars appearing in movies at this time period. And this is the same kind of a fad that Hollywood manages to create every now and then that they create this fascination for a for a certain certain group of professionals mm-hmm. and th- then you just start to haphazardly cast them all around different movies like in early 2000s it was the rappers and sometime after that it was the professional wrestlers when there was a big push of having yeah John Cena in action movies and Kane Hodder in horror movies and Lilith Mysterio appear in one or two films and then that ran its course and these days you no longer see except the rock correct and yeah and now we are just you know waiting for the for the next big boom that the hollywood hollywood will come up with and in fact there's the interview from mustafa Akkad himself who actually hints to the direction that Buster Rhymes was cast simply because of the name recognition. Yeah. You mean that that he wasn't cut into the project because of his acting talents? I I don't know how they found him, but in the documentary 25 Years of Terror, there is that one segment from a, a card when how they had already decided to cast Buster Rhymes and Mustafa did have no clue who Buster Rhymes was. And he just went and told his son that, you know, Buster Rhymes is going to be in, in the movie. And Mustafa's son got really excited. It's moments like that from one of the main producers of the film that, to me, really tell that Rhymes was not cast for any other reason than him simply being a hot name at the time. Like in H2O, we have flashbacks of Michael in Reflections once again. They just can't leave it alone. There is this moment when our leading character Sarah is doing something in front of a mirror and she sees Michael behind her and then there is no one there. Except that one kid in a completely different costume. Yeah, yeah, some kind of a bunny costume. Which kind of a... Which goes a long way showing exactly how cheaply and how haphazardly the whole movie was kind of put together. Why do you not like bunnies? I don't like how they basically take a scene from Halloween 4, where at the shop Jamie sees Flash of Michael, which happened apparently because of the psychic link or some shit like that, and here pretty much the exact same thing happens. And there is no explanation to it at all. Because it couldn't have been actual Michael Myers because Sarah turns so quickly that Michael does not have any time to disappear. And Sarah does not have any kind of a link to Michael Myers. So it can't be even, you know, any kind of a thorncoat connection thing. (laughs) They just threw it there because it's Michael Myers and Michael Myers pulls this shit. Well, there are several references to previous movies. You mentioned Jamie and Mirrors and stuff. There are references to trying to strangle someone with the telephone cord. In this case, 
Sarah is trying to strangle Michael with a telephone cord. Then there is the breaking in the closet door by the cook, the chef of the movie. Then there is falling on blood of Tyra Banks, which is kind of referencing, I think, Halloween 2 and Jimmy. Yep. Yeah, that's how it felt anyway. And it would make perfect sense because the director is the same dude. Yeah, you kind of see a lot of ego masturbation in this film. Ego masturbation. Please tell me more. Yeah, like all these callbacks, especially to Halloween 2, really show that Rick Rosenthal is stroking his ego here big time. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it always looked to me that there could have been a clash of egos with uh, Rick Rosenthal and John Carpenter at the time of Halloween 2. There is also the reference to Dr. Mixter, which is now a teacher in this film. Once again, full ejaculation on that ego. Right there, Rick. And still, despite, you know, bringing back Dr. Mixter, who was just quickly showed up drunken in Halloween too. Rick fucking Rosenthal can't bring back Ben Tramer, who he, we have been sorely missing ever since he was introduced as a hot piece of man meat in Halloween 1. I am convinced that you have mentioned Ben Tramer in every freaking Halloween episode <laughs> we have ever done. <laughs> the, the dude's exactly as legendary as Michael Myers himself. <laughs> The funny thing about Halloween 2018 interviews, Jamie Lee Curtis has said that she knows line by line the entire original Halloween. And also in Halloween 2018 interviews, she was asked something about Ben Tramer, and her response was, What? what, Who? But, 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 but you, you know, see, seeing that Tramer was <laughs> or was big brought up in both Halloween one and Halloween two, it, it's kind of a surprising to see exactly how far this franchise is ready to go, calling back on pretty much every single character on the franchise except Ben Tramer. It's <laughs> like. <laughs> It shows like the whole franchise is just hating poor Ben Tramer. Yeah. And he, he still was pretty interesting aspect in a way that he showcased the kind of the chaos that consumed the entirety of Haddonfield in Halloween 2. It would have been an interesting plot aspect to have Ben Tramer as the husband of Laurie Strode in Halloween 2018. But maybe it's just uh, getting a little bit too much of our trivia stuff. I don't know, Halloween 20 kind of have introduced the never-to-be-seen... What kind of, Was he some kind of a chunky? The ex-husband of Laurie Strode? Yeah, he was a methadone addict. Yeah, methadone addict. Ouch. Yeah, showing real love there. <laughs> it's great bit of dialogue in H2O. You know, I have to say, I believe... I thought I would give the axe to H2O. I wished that I could have given the axe for H2O. But then I revisited the movie and I saw too many great dialogue moments. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just... I don't care what her motivation was for that movie. It's confusing and convoluted, but she's doing a great job there. It's always great to watch Jamie Lee Curtis perform. Now that is true. 
I actually recommend that you check up on um, Scream Queens. Uh-huh. It's only two seasons. Okay. It's extremely easy to see through. You know, it's not that long of a series. Yeah, I could say that I love Jamie Lee Curtis. She's so nice. She's so nice to everybody, it seems. She's hugging everybody. Just having fun. Having a blast. She's a goddamn professional. Yeah. So sweet. Always so sweet. Well, there is this character called Donna. Donna is introduced as someone who is a kind of a smart university girl. She has a lot of pseudo-intellectual lines in this movie. Actually, all of them are terrible. And most of them don't make any sense. One of the first ones is that cameras are so phallic. And then there is this dude that responds, Is that good or bad? She responds, Depends who is watching. Please break down to me, what does this mean? Pretty much like all the psych mumbo-jumbo that Donna spews from her mouth throughout the movie, it does yeah. actually mean anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's the same kind of a typical Hollywood. It sounds like someone could once taken Psych 101 type of chipper that does never actually mean anything in these movies. It's like, you know, the science jargon in bad sci-fi horror films. Yeah, but this could have been done well. It could have made sense. But cameras that... are so phallic, depends who is watching. What does it mean? Nothing. Yeah, but you you know, to make that make some kind of a sense would actually take that there's some talent in the screenwriting department. Well, there obviously isn't. We can close that door now. Yeah, I mean, uh, the cameras are so phallic, the quotations Donna gives inside the Myers residence later on in the movie, they are in the same vein as her interview tape for the program, where she states that she's interested in how Michael Myers embodies the political violence (laughs) embedded in pop mythology, (laughs) which, once again, is... Is smart-sounding words combined together without any rhyme or reason and, in fact, does not mean anything. It does not mean anything at all. Yeah. We are introduced to the cameraman. Let's see if I can find the guy's name. Probably can. Is it Charles? I'm just gonna call him Charles. Well, Charles is the cameraman putting the cameras in position ready for the entertainment in the original Michael Myers house. He has a line where he says that he went to Long Beach State, the same school that Spielberg went to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah. Well, I did some fact-checking. Spielberg first enrolled at California State Long Beach in 1965, but dropped out three years later, just shy of his degree. I don't know if he ever finished any school, but he did not finish this one. He was there. That is correct, sir. The script actually says that this character is called Charlie, and the Charlie character says, hey, I went to the film school at Long Beach State, same as Spielberg. Unfortunately, the spelling in the script is S-P-E-I-L-B 
U-R-G. So much for knowledge of film. Yeah, so, so much, you know, using Google at the internet age. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, why? This is supposed to be the internet age, Halloween. Come on, yeah. try a little. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is the Halloween film that makes huge fuss about how we are now living the internet age and the fucking screenwriter can't use a Google. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. After this, or during this, Tyra Banks is doing the cappuccino and doing the famous Tyra Banks dance to her own music, I believe. Is it Tyra Banks music? I, I think so. It's similar to what Tyra Banks has made, I believe. She's a musician, right? I know she has written a book that I never read. And there was that TV show that I only checked out, checked occasionally. Good. Side glances. I don't know if she's ever done any music, but I wouldn't be surprised to learn that she has recorded something because, you know, most often than not, you know, these people do end up making a record or two and trying to aim for that pop fame also. Mm. Exactly. And I now I cannot contain myself. I have to do the Tyra Banks dance right now. Cue music. Okay, I'm done. We have a lot of weird dialogue in this movie all over the place. It doesn't make sense. Donna is contributing to it. And then there is some sexist dialogue. For example, Scott is having this perverted little one-liner. Donna, you got great legs. At what time do they open? He gets the finger. And the response is, would that be one o'clock? I am not entirely convinced that this kind of lineage would be possible to do at this day and age. Well, I would say that this kind of a line was not okay even in the Stone Age. <laughs> That's, yeah. But this movie... This is really weird, because this movie uh, starts in the Myers house, and as soon as the doors close behind them, and no one will be allowed to leave until the show is over... Uh, Everyone is having a partner immediately in this house. We establish that all of the guys in the house are horny. We establish that with Scott. We establish that with Rudy, the cook. We establish that with... Uh, is there anyone else there? <laughs> well, everyone is horny. Even the cook says to Sarah something that hints to that. And... After they have established that everyone is horny, that's when the terror starts with the fake scare done by Jen. Jen is actually uh, relatively well-known. She is Katie Sackhoff. She's been in... Has she been in uh, Stargate? Uh, I she's hope been, not. <laughs> she's been in Battlestar Galactica. She's been in Oculus... She's been in Star Wars, the Clone Wars TV series. Yeah, she is really obnoxious in this movie, but the other movies that I have, or the series that I have seen of her here and there, she's not too bad. She's not too bad. But here I do not like her. What about you? Do you have a crush on this character? Not, not the slightest. Hmm. How come? Well... 
first of all, I, I'm not a person to actually form crushes on fictional persons. Yeah. Especially not on this film. Yes. Good for you. I'm not saying that I have, I'm having any crushes. There are few, just few, logical fallacies with the premise of the entire movie and the plot. The biggest might be that it is just completely impossible for Michael to stay out of sight of all eyes and cameras at all times when it's convenient. Every character of this movie is wearing a camera. How many people are in the house? There are one, two, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least six people in the house. And then there is then there is uh, Freddy in the house at one point as well. And then there is at least one camera in each room, at least, I would say. So that is one hell of a job to avoid for quite a while to get noticed by anyone. Well, he does get noticed by the outside world. But it does take a while. I don't know if maybe Deckard just does not pay any attention all those times he sees Michael before the killing starts. You're making way too many excuses for this quality film. I mean, come on, for my, if I remember correctly, even Sarah spots Michael inside the house before she enters the house and pays no attention to this fact at any way. True. Even though Freddy has made the case and promised that he would not fake anything Mm. inside the house. Which is a complete lie. Which is a complete lie, but hey... That's how it goes every time. Yeah. Let's say roughly 25% of the movie is shot with low-quality cameras from 2002. It is not exactly a joy to watch the movie through these cameras. It's unnecessary, and I think they should have prepared for the future markets where they have much better video cameras available for them, even web cameras. Nowadays you can't roughly tell even the difference between a web camera and a studio camera, so it just looks bad. That being said, Deckard looking at the live feed, that looks really good in quality, circa 2002. I mean, I wish I could have had such an amazing internet connection back in the day to get such a quality picture back then. But, uh, Henrik, would someone actually watch this show? Well, that was Big Brother, but uh, why do you watch this show? I think it's established pretty poorly. Even the script makes the case that there is some reporter or caller who asks, why would I watch this show? What's the appeal? And if it's all done for real, then what is there to see? Yeah. That's been kind of the running problem in this Big Brother-esque horror movies all together. Yes. But they, they have all, except few exceptions. For example, My Little Eye. The whole idea that the show they are supposed to be filming within the movie's universe would somehow be interesting to anyone is kind of a long leap to take. Yeah. We have some examples of bad ADR. We have the line from Scott after having some sexual discussion with Donna. He says, bummer, which is so obviously dropped in as an ADR. You can hear it clear as day. 
I think there are even two lines from Scott that are just poorly edited in. It's weird that the sound is circulating in the speakers of the party house when things get noisy in the Myers building. It just doesn't make any sense that they're having this echo, uh, squeaking noise in their speakers. Then there is the line by Donna where she says Lothario, but actually pronounces it Losario, so that kind of a fail in itself. Lothario is a man who seduces women. More weird lines. Yeah, this was inside the party house, I believe. Somebody says, I can be a camera. As a comment on, I suppose, the sex scene happening with Donna and Scott. I can be a camera. I don't know what it means. I guess that's trying to call back on that whole phallic symbol line uttered All right. early yeah. on in the film. Of course, of course. More smart quotes from Donna. Existence precedes essence. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, how to topple this one? <laughs> they use correct line, but they use it wrongly. Existence precedes essence is basically, it's a quotation from uh, Sartre and is basically one of the claims of existentialist philosophy. But how is it fitting in a sex scene? Yeah, that that's the problem. It's not the slightest and it's not fitting used this way on someone who is supposed to be studying psychology. As for my understanding, Donna is. Yeah, but it, at least it's something smart to say. That's what he wants to hear. But it is it's not. It, it, it's not here. Because the line loses all its meaning when it's taken out of the context and when it's taken out of philosophy and just drop haphazardly as it's done here. Yep. You clearly see that someone just found the line, thought it sounded smart, and just wrote it in in the script without thinking through what the line actually meant, and without any understanding on that line. And that's my main problem with all of Donna's dialogue in this film, because they are all, it's all built up exactly like this. It's just smart-sounding things, just written on a paper without actually thinking what is being said. Yeah. And it creates the situation where nothing sounds smart. The scene continues with Made in fucking Taiwan. This is also quite ridiculous. Like there would be like a huge metallic object screwed to the fake hand that they can see clearly that it's saying made in... Fucking Taiwan. Oh, you think that's ridiculous? I mean... <sighs> also? That ju- just just try to figure out the logic Freddy was going through when setting up this whole stunt. Also? Yeah, I mean, I, I get the excitement of hiding the fake corpses there to create the feeling that there is something, even anything, for the audiences to watch on the Dangertainment broadcast. But at the same time, what Freddy actually ends up doing is collapsing an actual brick wall upon two of the participants 
of the program. Like, that's actually a dangerous thing to do. You are putting them underneath a ton of bricks. And, you know, in Hollywood system, that could be something that would end up being liable to sue you for. Quite possible. But there is the off chance that we are watching a movie. Uh, yeah. But once again, you know, these are things that make sense. If you watch this going through that you are watching cheap and badly made Hollywood horror film. That it is. Nothing of these stunts being pulled off makes any kind of a logical sense within the universe the movie tries to set up. Nobody has also learned anything about Halloween 5 where they cheapen the character of Michael Myers by showing another character wearing the exact same replica mask of his for a part of a joke. Here we play the exact same thing with a Freddy character and it's just terrible. And it's just also equally laughable how Michael Myers just turns around, obeys Freddy and goes back to the observation booth. Okay, that being said, it could make sense that Michael goes to challenge Tyra Banks because she is the only remaining person viewing the security cameras and it could be a worthwhile thing to go and wipe her out. So there is that, but the scene is just... Not exactly the best scene of entire cinema history. But it's still one of the best scenes of this film. Really? There is some real enjoyment to be had (laughs) on the fact that Michael Myers, the invisible killer of the franchise, backs off simply because someone yells at him. That's the trick of surviving Michael Myers. Just yell at him and he will push out. And from the whole yelling at Michael thing, we finally found ourselves at Michael's lair, which has been uncovered by the two doofuses <laughs> due to Freddy actually collapsing the brick wall on top of their backs. And this is once again one of the moments where I actually failed to grasp the logic that the scriptwriter has tried to build, I guess. Because in here, it's so that Michael does come back to Haddonfield because he wants to get back to his childhood home. But at the same time, even though he's extremely protective of the old place, he refuses to actually live inside the house. Instead, he lives at the local sewer system. The worst possible choice you can make to hide your creepy ass serial killer lair because not only would that mean that your layer would constantly be taking in rainwater since it's directly underneath the public street sewers but you would also risk the chance of flooding every single time that you know the rain levels would get too high But even top of that, you would also risk the chance of being found any municipal worker who would just come down there to do random checkup on the sewer system or do some repairs. So basically, Michael hides himself in the worst possible spot he could find, notwithstanding the one-time scenario where the entertainment broadcast would come inside the actual house and apparently Michael has been living there for quite some time already seeing how you know he has the whole rat cooking operation going on 
Not even rat cooking. I think it's just a sushi rat. What's the difference between sushi rat and rat cooking? Wasn't the rat lying on some kind of a stove? I didn't catch that. I only catch that it was raw as a rat and just eaten halfway and somehow the rat is still alive. Yeah, because, you know, that's how being half-eaten alive and bleeding works. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know that rats are generally tough bastards, but that's kind of a pushing it. Then there is a wonderful scene of giggling, because there is also pot smoking involved. Not in this podcast, not in this podcast. But Unfortunately there... not. Yeah, I think this movie deserves some pot. I think we deserve some pot. <laughs> yeah. But of course we are not going to touch the stuff because we are law-abiding citizens. Of course, and we don't live in the Washington state yet. Uh, yet. But this movie may be enough to move there. Um, There is this line, it's good thing there's no cameras in here. We're wearing cameras. And then the whole thing goes giggling. Yeah. You're doing drugs on live stream. With an actual bong, which you have, I doubt anyone on Myers' residence would have had on hand, which means that you must have brought it with you inside the house where you know you are participating on a, you know, live stream broadcast. Yes, and then the fake Michael, played by Mr. Rapper, comes and... Then he's exposed as for what it is. It's Freddy. And he's talking about giving all the people in the house a robust back end. There's a funny story for me because I always thought that Freddy is saying here, bust a back end. That would have been fun. But no, it's just a robust back end. God damn it. In your defense... Basta's line delivery is so goddamn mumbled. It it's is. really hard to actually make sense what the hell he's saying. It is. Then there is one line where he says about the razzle-dazzle and a little bit of pizzazz. Now, since you are the encyclopedia of the show, what is P-I-Z-A-Z-Z or P-I-Z-A-Z-Z? Pizzazz. Since when have I been the encyclopedia of this show? Since this second. <laughs> I would believe what he's trying to say. And I emphasize the word trying is business. But he can't say that because in his heart he's a rap artist. And that means you can't actually speak in any way that makes sense. I tried to find this word via DuckDuckGo or Google, but could not find any pizzazz. Well, then we have a suggestion about that protein adds to aggression. I tried to find some scientific data about this. I could not get very far. I could find something that the diet, the excessive protein could add some kind of aggression perhaps, or at the very least some behavioral pattern changes in animals, like, for example, dogs. But uh, does protein add aggression in humans? Do you know anything about this? There are few ways to actually try to approach the whole protein thing. One of the 
which the movie obviously is not taking, is the whole soy boy phenomena that is now raising its head in internet culture. And these beliefs that, you know, ties into different food products affecting the testosterone levels in men. Like how soy is supposed to kill testosterone and you could try to spin that huge protein intake would, on the other hand, raise the testosterone level. That's obviously is not the case here. Something that this writer could have tried to pull off was linking protein to the steroid use. Not directly, but trying to build up the gap that food protein would somehow have the same effect, similar way to abusing some steroids. And this way, the whole protein intake line could try to link itself to the roid rage effect, which in itself is kind of a dubious and is not how steroid or protein works. But I would make the argument that the script is not even that smart. So where this entirely comes to is the age-old internet meme about how Hitler was non-drinking vegan and Churchill ate red meat, smoked and drank like a mushroom. That's the entire build-up behind the whole line. Basically a pseudo-scientific cook then. Thank you, Henrik. Basically like every single character in this goddamn film. Yes. Maybe excluding Sarah, but every other character in the interview tapes for the program gave actually pseudoscientific reason for them wanting to take part in the program. Hmm. I feel for them, but let's move on to the text messaging between Sarah and Deckard. There is this moment that kind of, well, we kind of love to go through all the mistakes or the completely unbelievable, nonsensical moments of movies, don't we? I think we take the most of our podcast time just going through the absurdities of any film. I would not agree with that. In case I would, you know... Present as evidence A, this very episode at the moment, in which we have overlooked extremely lot of nonsensical shit and stupid mistakes from the film's part, and simply skipped over them. Like we are being, it may not be obvious to our listeners, but we are being extremely forgiving here on this episode. So far, so far. We are kind of going by the lead of me, but I will be extremely interested what you would have to say about the mistakes of this film or the shortcomings. Well, we basically have to go back to the beginning of this film for that. I see. Well, yeah, well, go ahead if you have something to kind of crucify this film further. No, no, we can follow your lead and, you know, simply keep the ball rolling. Okay. My filtering system has been then inadequate. There is this uh, Deckard and Sarah are exchanging text messages. There is this moment that is kind of uh, ludicrous where text message says that 
try the window. Well, duh, if you want to get out of the house and avoid Michael, then I would suggest that kind of getting out of the confines of a sealed space, you have to get out of there to avoid him. So, yeah, you don't need a text message for that. Oh, that's your take on the text messages. Really? Well, shoot. Because, god damn it, I I can, you know, I, I can top that when it comes to text messages. Because there's the moment when Deckard texts Sarah that, don't scream. And what does the dumb bastard do? Immediately screams. Like, <laughs> she, you know. a- she ADR screams. She cannot actually scream, this actress. Well, she does something which Michael can hear. Apparently, even though it was recorded in studio. <laughs> but, you know, it's that super hearing. It's just one of Michael's many talents. But, you know, the... when, when it comes to the texting, you know, that's my favorite example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she's, she's completely calm until, you know, the text forms into whatever the electronic machine she's carrying is, which is extremely slow because the letters appear one by one. So sending a text to her takes like three seconds or two seconds. Too long. Yeah. Yeah, way too long. Yeah. And all, all Deckard sends her is don't scream. And immediately after that, she screams. She does. But we have already established in the beginning of this film that she is afraid of her own shadow as well. Well, okay, well, well, let's get scientific here. It's not the shadow, but there is, I believe, a studio lamp that falls on its ass. And <laughs> yeah. then she's just like, ah! <laughs> breaks the fucking glass on the table. She really did, huh? I, I read it in the script, but I didn't catch that in the movie. She breaks a freaking glass. That's ridiculous. See, she does break a freaking glass. That's why, you know, Freddy gets so interested in having her on the broadcast. That's what I'm looking for. Well, Sarah gets to the top of the building on the roof. And uh, apparently Michael has decided that the best course of action of taking care of the cameraman's body is to take him to the building's roof. Yeah, well, where else would you hide it? The sewer system is already full of bodies and, you know, you nailed Tyra Banks to the garage. So, you know, you're running out of space here. There's that. Or he could have burned it. Michael Myers in this movie does not have the brain powers to burn bodies. Ah, yeah. Like, like we, are, we are dealing with Michael Myers. Yeah. Whose first reaction to any solid object in his way Beat a fucking door or closed window is to head back. Well, fret not, we're getting to the kung fu shit of this episode. It is now Freddy versus Michael in an epic showdown of martial arts. The film says it all on my behalf when even Michael Myers is visibly confused by Buster Rhymes shit. <laughs> yeah. And then Michael gets hanged. He dies and then doesn't die. Cuts the cord. Isn't this the part where he just gets kicked out of the second story window? He gets kicked out of the second story window and somehow magically gets tied into a rope and hanged. Does he get, uh, does he get hanged? He gets by the lung to the cable and is killed. 
for that one, two minutes. And then he cuts it. Okay. I do not like that they are burning down the Myers house because it is like killing part of Michael. It's killing part of the whole essence of Halloween. But then again, well, you know, this movie has already done a bunch of absurd uh, circumstances. So this is just one of them. To me, the Myers house as a building never was anything of importance. So I really have no feelings whatsoever seeing it in flames here. Uh, then we kind of get the return of Freddy after he has been stabbed at least twice. He gets back to challenge Michael Myers in the garage. And there is this infamous line that is forever known of this movie. It's trick or treat, motherfucker. And it's not even delivered that well as you just did. I mean, that's a really awkward pause. Between trick or treat, motherfucker. Is there? Oh, yeah. There is, and it takes fucking forever. And even that, you know, motherfucker is set out kind of a whimpering. Yes. Then we have a short kind of a picnic in amidst the flames as we are frying Michael's balls. Any thoughts on that? I, I can just say, you know, that was not fair on Basta's part, you know. <laughs> Raising someone in the general house, you know, albeit he's a mad psychopath, you know. There's some things you do not do. Are you saying that it cheapens the character in any way? <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying it cheapens the character. Then what does? I, what I'm saying, does? I'm saying Michael accidentally killing himself cheapest Michael Myers <laughs> yeah that's the that's the alternative cut at least or are you suggesting that it happens in the actual final cut that is just you know assisted suicide yeah the dummy gets in between the cable cords and his set of flame yeah but still the alternative ending for this movie which has <laughs> Michael killing, practically killing himself <laughs> at the final stretch. It it really says everything about this movie. Yeah. Like so, someone wrote that, and, and then you had a few million film crew that actually had to spend time filming that. <laughs> I could not find it right now for this episode, but I am convinced as all... Hell, that there is a cut where Deckard actually saves Sarah from this garage. And instead of Buster Rhymes, Deckard comes to save the day and gets Sarah out of the building. That was how, for my understanding, it was supposed to go originally. Mm. And there is that one scene which takes place after that happening, where they talk about Deckard saving Sarah from the burning building. Mm. But how are you feeling right now? Is the question of one of the reporters delivered in a ever funny way. So now the fire is burning in the house and Michael has been burned to a crisp. In the final cut, Freddie Mercury and Sarah go see the body. And there is this line from Freddie that feeling a little crispy over there, Mikey. Like a chicken fried motherfucker. 
but there is even a better line in uh, the alternative scene. So if our listeners are ready for that, that is you big ass kicking ball busting chick. God bless you. So this is a performance that could have delivered him an Oscar. It was the only scene where Sarah actually in any way manages to be capable in this whole movie. And smiles after. Yeah, well, why would she smile? It's an absurd moment to smile. It's, you know, on the contrary, you know, that's the one moment where she can smile. After what? After after being followed by a mass serial killer in a burning house. After managing to actually nail the axe on Michael's head. And all of her friends are killed. Yeah, yeah, but still... The first fucking time in hour and a half that she's in any way capable of doing anything. I mean, we are talking about the character who previously had had a gigantic chainsaw and still managed to fuck up. I mean, Sarah is being a bigger retard than fucking Forrest Gump throughout the movie. And this is the one moment, the one moment when she actually manages to do something right. So then answer me, how is it possible that the fireman, fireman of all people, is showing the body of Michael Myers for these two people? Why? He doesn't have any reason to do so. It would never happen in real life, of course, but we're talking about Halloween Resurrection. Well, uh, of course, the fireman is, you know, in on it. Uh, yeah, oh, uh, sorry, 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 sorry. I forgot. He, 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 knows, has, he, knows. he has read the script. He, he knows that Sarah has completely failed to do anything remarkable throughout the entire experience. So now, to be a good sport, you know, he carries Michael's body in front of them and, you know, shows it off in hopes that Michael Myers will still do something and grant Sarah that one moment where she can do something right. And God bless Michael, he comes through and pulls it off. And there are about three or four different versions of the ending. One of the endings is the CSI ending, where one of the lady cops comes to the sewer of the house and reaches into the sewer a little bit with his head and then is grabbed by Michael into the sewers. Then there is another version where Deckard comes to the scene and is talking with an unimpressed Sarah and they're next to the ambulance sitting and Deckard is telling all about him and uh, still Sarah is just, yeah, whatever, bitch. And then there is a third version, which is the final version where they're taking Michael into the mortuary and uh, the mortuary person is trying to remove the mask and then Michael wakes up and comes out of the whole ordeal alive and roll credits. Am I leaving something out of the picture still? No, I guess, I believe you covered all the endings for this film. Okay, thank you very much. So, what is next? Then there is uh, the script, we, which we have not discussed. There are slight differences in the script. Not many of them very interesting, but um, the movie in the script starts actually with the... There's a Super 8 camera video, and we follow... A pretty 16-year-old girl who tickles her baby sister 
A jovial father works for the barbecue. Mom blows bubbles for the baby. A family portrait. Mom, dad, the sisters and a sullen little boy with his back to the camera who won't join the group. The Super 8 camera follows the boy through the backyard when he finally turns his expression is disturbingly blank. We go closer and closer and into the boy's dark soulless eyes as his pupils fill the screen we find ourselves in, well, the credits. Then some more scenes. Michael gets hit with Laurie's lamp and also slips on hundreds of pills collected into that doll over the years. Then um, Tyra Banks' <laughs> character is described as she is a lithe Amazonian dream, razor sharp eyes, knows what she wants and just how to get it. Well, that's a perfect description of Tyra Banks or whatever she kind of depicts as being. Um, I wonder if they had already decided to get Tyra Banks at this point. Anyway, moving on, then there is this useless tent scene where Michael starts up a car. There are a man and a girl inside a tent and... Uh, Nothing is important here. Michael takes the car and drives off. <laughs> and that's basically all. And in the end of the script, it explains all the different endings that they were thinking of. What do you think about the music in Halloween A Resurrection? I actually quite hate it. Yes. Oh, I hate the new take on the theme this movie has once again going for. I do and like that at least trying to do something different because in the beginning of the movie the, is this the only movie that actually starts with the Halloween theme apart from the original Halloween that might be the case and similarly this doesn't have the oomph oomph in the background of the sound but I do not like the soundtrack either because it's um, I feel it's very generic and secondly it has a lot of echo. Yeah, the most notable aspect of the soundtrack of this movie is kind of a, how how easy to miss it is. Like you, you watch the film and you barely notice it during the scenes when it's playing. And uh, after seeing the movie, if you have even managed to notice the soundtrack, you will immediately forget it. Yes. Now we have to get to the inevitable, which is business and if i look at the business of halloween resurrection we have this old friend called halloween 5 and it's always called the like the worst performing uh, halloween in the series let me check again three million budget for halloween 5 gross usa 11 million well that that, that is absolutely fantastic compared to halloween resurrection Let's get to Halloween Resurrection, shall we? I didn't adjust for inflation in Halloween 5, but it, it's not important at all. So the budget of Halloween Resurrection is 15 million estimated. Opening weekend USA, 12 million dollars. Gross USA, 30 million. Cumulative worldwide gross is 37 million. So budget 15 million and overall 37 million. There is the kind of a old rule when it comes to movie budgets that you have to double the budget or the, you know, the announced production budget of the film to count in the marketing costs of the film mm. also. So in here, 
if we go by that rule, which does not hold true every single time and for every single film, for some films the marketing is way less and then for some other movies it's way more. But, you know, if, if we take that as a general rule, in that case, the uh, total budget production plus marketing would be 30 million. And we are looking at 7 million profit, which is pretty abysmal, especially seeing that there is still relatively large production house, the dimension films behind this movie. Yes. How would you break down the first act of Halloween Resurrection? I would say that the Halloween Resurrection first act takes place from the beginning credits to uh, the first death of this guy whose name is Bill. So, exceptional cinema, right? Extremely exceptional cinema. Right. The second act from the death of Bill all the way to... I guess Buster Rhymes kicking some Michael Myers balls ass. I I would I would cut the second act maybe a bit shorter. Uh-huh. I would mark the beginning of third act from Buster Rhymes finally figuring out what's going in the house, if not a bit even bit sooner than that. The middle part for me is the most boring, and of course in uh, any kind of uh, cinema. It's always the hardest part to pull through correctly. But my god, in this film they are just moving around the house. Not a lot of things happening. (sighs) You know, and then there is no rhyme and reason for Michael to kind of doing anything. He has completed his life work, except for the character of John. So I thoroughly was very bored throughout, well, the first and second act and third act. Halloween Resurrection has the case where it tries to open strongly with the sanitarium. It does, and then it gets completely boring right after Lori is dead. That it does, and I would, in my opinion, it does not even pull off the sanitarium part that well. Even the sanitarium and the whole Lori's death scene is in the end, kind of a snoozy. Yeah. And it just gets more boring from there. If you are going to watch Halloween Resurrection, then you... If you must, then you probably want to watch the first 15 minutes when Laurie Strode dies. And after that, nothing is happening. But as I have said many times before, if you're a Halloween fan, you will watch the movie in its entirety regardless. I cannot stop you, unfortunately. Well, what do you think about the third act? Was it the correct ending that they chose? It's better than, you know, ending Michael Myers killing himself. I give it that much. And it's better than the Deckard ending. Uh, I still have, like, a, I could go with the CSI ending as well. It's similar. We're dealing with characters that uh, we are not been introduced in any other parts of the film or the franchise. It's similar to the morgue scene. Could go either way. Then again, the CSI ending. There's no logic for Michael actually first burning up at the garage, 
then crawling into the sewer system and then hanging around God knows how long in the sewers, simply waiting for some poor CSI to come too close and stick her head near the sewer entrance. So, yeah, he survives the burning and then just goes by on his own to the sewers and catches this CSI girl. All right, I see. Well, what would you improve in the film? If I would have to go with this premise the movie gives to me, I don't know. Exactly. I mean, I see a potential in this reality TV really aspect this film is taking. In my head, I would picture this as a straight-to-DVD experience where the audience would be given the chance to actually switch between the perspectives or switch mm. between the cameras. And this way, the viewpoint through which they are taking in the film. This is one of the things that I was waiting with a kind of a lot of excitement as a teenage kid. Because if I am correct, there was a promise that Rick Rosenthal wanted to release a DVD version of this movie where you would be able to view all the different angles of the characters in different moments and you would be able to view all of them at uh, any given moment and kind of select it from there well if we think about the dvd format well the only way to do this i believe is to just have all of the camera angles show like in the movie at the same time so the screen would be split into four parts so it's a four person multiplayer now But even when I was a teenager, I could not understand how they would actually make this happen because there cannot be a very long moments where you can show the individual cameras filming the area because obviously they would then turn into the props and the setup and Rick Rosenthal and the crew and the actual filming cameras in behind the set. It doesn't make any freaking sense. You cannot do that. And they never did that. For obvious reasons, I believe. But that's one of the traps on this whole reality TV craze that the horror movies had at the early 2000s. Where that would be what you would want to do. Create that kind of a kind of an interactive experience where you can switch between the viewpoints. And follow these characters throughout the movie and these different perspectives throughout the movie and kind of a build up your own movie experience. If you do not understand the technology and this way the limitations that play in, that would immediately be, like you said, the wild vision or the dream for the teenage you. But the problem is. That, first of all, splitting the screen on four is not sustainable choice because it would get extremely annoying. It would get extremely tiring for anyone watching the film and audiences would miss a lot of movie because they would have to keep an eye on uh, one fourth of the screen. So they wouldn't get the whole picture, which in case... Yeah, which in case would mean that you would have to give them the ability to jump 
between the different viewpoints on real time as the movie is playing, which in turn is not really something you can fluidly pull off, as far yeah. as I understand DVD technology. Yeah, and in the constraints of the scenes that they are filming, it would not be a continuous flow of film, but there would be a lot of cuts in the way, at least. So, it, yeah, it cannot work. The illusion of the reality TV aspect would kind of demand that the audience would have to be able to follow each character in the film kind of a continuously if they would choose so, which eliminates the possibility of using cuts, because if you start to introduce cuts, you won't get the whole experience. You would just get these small snippets between you know, the different characters. In order to pull off the illusion, the way I see it is you would have to film the entire film multiple times from all these different perspectives. Like in here you have six persons, so you would have to film the hour and a half movie six times from each perspective and then combine them all together in the DVD disc. Then on top of that, you know, build up the possibility for the viewer to skip between the different perspectives, which can't be done. Mm-mm. And even if it would be possible to do, that would mean that you kind of would have this experience where it's a lot of nothing happening and extremely a lot of people just standing quietly still waiting for the next sound cue where to react. Because the film is still tied into the script. So if you've written it so that Sarah hears John, let's say we have Sarah and John, and John gets killed in the garage, and Sarah hears John screaming at the moment he's killed. Who's John? Uh, he's a fictional character that I just pulled out of my ass to, to make an example. Okay. Why this would not work. In that case, well, at first you would have to, you know, follow both Sarah and John and film their perspectives up until that point separately. So let's say it's an one hour and 20 minutes in the film when John gets killed. So you film John for one hour and 20 minutes. You film Sarah one hour and 20 minutes. Then on John's perspective, you film how he dies. And you film from Sarah's perspective how she hears John scream. And between, you know, from the beginning of the movie up until this point, there would be you had filmed hour and 20 minutes, during which, because you are tied by the script, not that much could have have happened, which means there would be an extremely lot of footage. For example, John just, you know, standing on different rooms, checking magazines on some table, checking underneath the bed, standing in the closet for no obvious reason, except, you know, just to buy time until the script says that he has to walk into the garage and get killed. So it would be a really great illusion once the person seeing the DVD would know at what point to switch, at what perspective, 
so that he would constantly switch into a perspective where something is happening. Yeah, in short, it's impossible. Yeah, but once again, you know, if you're a hack filmmaker who does not understand the limitations of technology, does not understand, oh, you know, how important for the illusion it would be to keep filming from all these perspectives all the time. In that case, you know, I I could believe that you could falsely create in your head this idea how you are making this interactive horror film and it's going to be so cool and audiences are going to love it. Mm -hmm. Like thinking that you could pull that off if you do not understand the technology and the limitations behind the technology, you know... You have to be Rick Rosenthal. You would have to be early 2000s horror director. Because this is the exact same problem where My Little Eye runs into. Where it also was marketed how you can see the things happening from different perspectives. Because it put off the exact same gimmick. And once again, the execution at the end, because of the limitations, is exactly the same as it is with Halloween Resurrection, where the core experience, the movie, is tied down, and you are not given the opportunity to switch between perspectives and have this immersive experience. Mm. And then all the different perspectives are just, you know, short extra clips, stuck in the extra section of the DVD. And the movie still plays out exactly like any other slasher film, except that the quality is lessened because you are watching it through, you know, these video cameras that has been set throughout the house. What is your favorite performance of the film? I don't have one. If I would be forced to pick one, I would say Tyra Banks. If I would be forced to pick one, I would say Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis is way too uninterested being here for me to actually get excited. But how do you differentiate? Because how do you know that she is showing there on the screen that she doesn't want to be there versus the fact that she has to play a character who also doesn't want to be there and is... Tired and wear down character who just wants to get this over with. I would say I differentiate by the fact that at no point of her scene does she show any kind of an energy in what she's doing. She's tired and extremely weary. When we first see her in her room, Mm. she's extremely tired and weary and has no energy at all when. She's running for her life, uh, trying to escape Michael. And she expresses no joy, no enthusiasm, no relief, absolutely nothing except complete deadpan. When her master plan that she has been working on for God knows how long finally works out. And she finally has an upper hand on Michael Myers and finally could put a nail on the coffin, so to speak. And she's still like, I don't even want to be here on this rooftop, finishing off Michael Myers. That speaks Ah. something about the movie, because I still think that that is the best performance of the film. Yeah, to me it's too obvious. 
That okay. Jamie Lee Curtis really does not want to be there. Okay. Any form. Okay. What's your favorite kill scene? Favorite kill is Freddy killing Michael Myers at, and burning him up because it means the movie is ending. Not confirmed. He wakes up in the hospital later. Yeah, well, you know, up until that point, I had my sweet, sweet dream. Okay, well, you go with the no kill. I like when... Michael it... Myers stabs Jamie Lee Curtis. Just admit it. No, I do not like that at all. <laughs> I do like... What's this character again? You know, it's very telling when you can't even remember the names of the characters. Um, mm-hmm. Jen. Jen's head is cut off in the second floor of the Myers residence. That's my favorite kill. It is the more kind of interesting kills of this film. Which kind of launches the whole Michael's here, da-da-da. What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene, most definitely, is once again from the end of the film. It is the moment when Deckard texts Sarah that she's alive. Because the dumb fucker hasn't figured that one out yet. <laughs> and this is one of the moments in this movie, or I would say the only moment when Bianca's performance actually enhances the experience. Because she's so extremely expressionless on that moment mm. that you can really imagine how Sarah is going or, you know, reads the message, you're alive. And goes on like, <laughs> me not dead equals me alive. <laughs> Some of my favorite cinematography, if there is any, is in the beginning of the film, around the sanitarium. Somewhere around when we see the guards and we see the shadow of Michael juxtaposed against the wall. Best cinematography in this movie is, you're right on the money, it's in the beginning of the film, but it's the moment when there's the first person shot of Michael banging his head to the door. (laughs) 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 That's the moment where the cinematography actually enhances the experience and tells you what is going on. (laughs) Yeah, that's an odd scene. I used to think about it when I watched, watched the film. Boom, boom, with the... I was wondering if they were running so low on the budget that they couldn't kind of include some kind of a third-person view smashing of the door down from the other side of the door. Except that they introduce it right after that. They do introduce it right after that, but not in the other shot. Well, it's one of the mysteries, part of the supernatural edge. Yeah, I mean, that's a moment where you clearly can tell that that was some kind of a ham-fisted artistic decision. It reminds me of some kind of a video game, actually. Yeah. You play a lot of first-person shooters where you bang your head against the wall. Occasionally, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, you know, whatever suits you. (laughs) Who am I to charge? What is your favorite quote? Trick or treat, motherfucker. Trick or treat, motherfucker. I'm sorry, I cannot do it as well as Buster Rhymes did. Yeah, you put way too much, you know, manliness into it. Trick or treat, motherfucker. Yeah, we're still, still way too manly. 
<laughs> you you have to you have to drop a lot of that, you know, to get the pasta rhymes levels here. <laughs> I feel like Vin Diesel now. You you sh- you should feel like you are at the same time extremely scared and confused about what you are doing. Ah, I will try to rehearse in front of a mirror. Oh, you can make a you know a dubstep song <laughs> from you know that one line. Uh, oh, that line and that chicken fried motherfucker line. <laughs> Combine them together. I'm still working on my Halloween three dubstep mix. I and I'm externally grateful that you still haven't managed to finish it. <laughs> when you think of this movie, what's the first image that comes to mind? Actually, this is the movie where I'm drawing. No, no, the first thing that comes to mind. I I I'm drawing complete blank here, but now since you ask, you know, an image in fact did come to my mind. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's that close-up shot on Tyra Banks' ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry about this, you know. <laughs> I, 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 even I wish that it would have been any other shot from this film, but no, no. I'm, I'm. Whenever I think about this film, all I can remember is is the poster, <laughs> the theatrical poster. And nothing, absolutely fucking nothing from this film. And now that you asked, you know, that was the first thing that came to my mind. And I even just saw this film. I'm already forgotten it. God damn. Good. Good for you. I think of the rooftop confrontation when I think of this film. Do you mean the moment when Michael <laughs> smashes his head through the window and Sarah immediately kicks him in the head? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nah, the other one. What's the other one? Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay, yeah, already forgot that. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Rewatchability of this movie is kind of low. I, I suspect, I'm not sure. Kind of. It's extremely zero with this film. What's the most ridiculous scene of this movie? If we count in the alternative takes, yeah. it's Michael Myers killing himself. By accident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the most ridiculous scene is killing the main character of the series, Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, there. I I would say even more ridiculous than that, you know, Jamie getting the knife, is the exactly brain-dead moment when when Laurie's finally caught Michael and is hanging him from the rope and has already started to cut the rope to kill Michael and then starts having second thoughts and, you know... I just have to be sure. You you have to be sure, you know, because you can't be certain if the person who just tried to kill you is the person who just tried to kill you. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> because, you know, even if that would not have been Michael Myers himself, it would not have made any difference on that moment. Yeah. It's still a masked maniac who has come after you with a long-ass kitchen knife. So what are you making sure of here? You are making sure if this is uh, another part of the ambulance group who with, once the, again... with, with, with the curse of thorn, with the suggestive uh, 
druid shit happening to his brain that he's unable to control himself. Well, he has to be unable to control himself because Flory just can't yet again the fucking time just tell him to take off the mask and show his fucking face. Which also, may I point out, would not make any difference whatsoever in the film because... Last time Laurie Strode could have seen Michael Myers' face was back when Michael was six years old and killed his other sister. After that, he's been locked up in Smith's Grove. So basically, Michael's face has been, has changed considerably throughout the ages. And Laurie Strode would not have reference on what Michael Myers would look now. Incorrect. I'm doing it right now, saying that Laurie Strode has a reference point from 1978 when she herself unmasks Michael Myers for that brief moment. Granted, she's in a traumatic situation. There could be a slim chance of her actually registering what she's seeing, but that is the only moment of reference. It was too dark. She couldn't make anything out of that. Not dark enough for Loomis not to shoot six bullets in, or seven. Well, Loomis shot six bullets on a knife-wielding guy who's attacking a young girl. And I... Like Michael Myers or not, even I would shoot the fucker at that point. Of course you would. But the revealing of the face is the confirmation, I would argue, for Sam Loomis to shoot six bullets into the guy because he sees that this is Michael Myers. So there you go. I have just informed you of why Laurie Strode wants to see the face. You you make a good point. I must admit, I completely forgot that face reveal <laughs> or, or, or the original film. Yeah. But because I'm a complete fucking news face and refuse to admit being wrong at <laughs> any given situation, because that's pathetic as hell, I still make the claim that Loomis ended up shooting Michael Myers simply because, once again, Michael was attacking another human being with a long-ass knife. Then what is the point of the face reveal? Well, in my opinion, if I'm completely honest, I don't think it has a point. (laughs) Like, shooting at Michael Myers at that moment would be kind of a logical thing to do would it be Michael or would it not be? Would you see his face or would you not see his face? We're trying to make this too logical with Halloween Resurrection. Yeah, but you know, that's why we are here doing this podcast. Oh, yeah. Dear listeners, ladies and gentlemen, Shanovni uh, Panstvo, would you recommend Halloween Resurrection? <laughs> I I could reco- I I could recommend this if this would have more Tara Banks and the name would be Halloween Erection. <laughs> but no, uh, absolutely not. In, in in no case would I actually recommend Halloween Resurrection. To, to follow my you know uh, on what I said way back in Halloween Five. The series ending up 3-4. Halloween Resurrection now is the famous point where the franchise finally hits headfirst into the pavement. And headfirst because this is the movie where 
Michael Myers can't operate windows or doors and just has to headbang anything. If the franchise survives from this collision with the Earth, you know, that's what we see in the next installment, which is Rob Zombie's remake. So, of course, there was the death of Mustafa Akkad involved in the meantime, but needless to say, there was a big problem of getting this franchise back on its feet. As far as I've read, nobody had any real clue like how to continue the series and I cannot blame them. How do you continue something without any lead characters and you have you have made a movie that is absolutely about nothing. The plot is meaningless with characters you don't care about. Where do you go from there? With Josh Hartnett, yeah right. Best of luck. So this is why we reboot Michael Myers. They could have taken that one script idea, which has Michael Myers being in some kind of a military ship or in middle of the ocean where they are running illegal experiments on him in the name of some kind of a super soldier program. And they try to harness Michael's evil. Just to be in the safe side of the podcast, I will, if it wasn't absolutely clear yet, I would not recommend Halloween. Resurrection. How can you not recommend Halloween Resurrection? Here I thought you loved this movie. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I will recommend Halloween Resurrection. Yeah, that's my thoughts. I, I would recommend Halloween Resurrection. It's a valuable lesson on how to never make a movie. <laughs> no, I would not recommend it. <laughs> well, Henrik... <laughs> We are heading for the remakes of Rob Zombie, Halloween 1 and 2. How do you feel about that? At this point, I must confess I'm already getting some fatigue with this entire franchise. (laughs) I have to agree. I wanted wanted to say it in, in, in this podcast. It's so far, this is the worst installment of the series and... But I'm still looking forward for, or not really looking forward for, Halloween 2 of Rob Zombie. That just might be even worse than Halloween Resurrection. But uh, stay tuned on that. Stay tuned on that. Yeah, to our listeners, if you think that listening these episodes has been a tough project for you, you know, just try to actually record these fuckers two episodes in a week pace as we have been doing here and going through with with all these entries in this goddamn franchise and doing your background work for every single episode in a few days pace just for your listening pleasure yeah before halloween 2018 i i I can apologize for my bad english here but you know this hasn't been easy for us either i I would say me and carrie have suffered here more than you <laughs> when listening to us i did suffer viewing this movie again i did suffer reading the script i was even contemplating of not reading the script at all but i did skim through it all for you ladies and gentlemen ah henrik i think we are done here <laughs> not not by a long shot <laughs> we still have the <laughs> to go through yeah 
Henrik will return to Haddonfield, as will I. <laughs> Two more episodes to go. Thank you for listening to us. You can find us on the internet, as Henrik would say. So without further ado, see you next week again. Next week. Tällaista leffasta selviää ilman alkoholia kyllä.